Hi, Oksana. Hi, Turmini okay. Institute's podcast. We hosted your screening last month, but we still want to hear you more and we want to find out more about you. So let's talk. Let's talk. I'm happy to be back. That was such a good experience last month with all of you and your listeners. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start with a few questions. These podcasts are new for us as well. And we have a few strands and they're called Uncover or Discover. So we're trying to uncover what's inside Oksana and we want to discover people's thoughts. So like I was just telling you, let's talk about sites of Oksana. And I'm always fascinated by the your family story and stories from your childhood which are quite dramatic, but I'm sure there were very many joyful moments as well. Yeah, I mean, where to begin? I was born in Baku in 1984, which I always love the fact that I was born in that year because it's one of my favorite books when I was growing up. I mean, I was born in Baku and we became refugees because of the Artsakh war during that time and because Artsakh wanted to they signed a referendum and they wanted to become independent and join Armenia as they had been for centuries before. And what it did was create a backlash in Azerbaijan, which I felt was from the history and from talking to my parents, there was always a sense of discrimination towards Armenians in Azerbaijan, even during the Soviet Union. Um, but it was... Um, 1988, we fled. It was very, very dramatic. I remember seeing of an airport just filled with people in Azerbaijan trying to get out. I remember sleeping at the airport in Yerevan when we came with other refugees. And then a week later, the earthquake in Yerevan happened. Well, it happened in Spitak, but the effects were felt in Yerevan. It was one of my earliest memories of standing in that on the seventh floor of a apartment and seeing the water, you know, the bathtubs were filled with water during that time because they needed to save water. And I was standing in the doorway of the bathroom for some reason. And I watched the water start moving in the bathtub and then hitting the opposite wall. And then my dad grabbed me and we ran out. Um, and then we realized because of the Karab, we went to Karabakh for a little bit because at that time they thought the refugees from Azerbaijan were Armenians were going to go and populate Karabakh. But because of the conflict, because of everything that was the fall of the Soviet Union and everything was going on, we just realized that the country couldn't sustain refugees. So my family left again to go to Moscow. We lived there from, I think, 89 to 91, we left and we were granted asylum in the United States and we settled in Detroit in 91. And, um, you know, my mom always says we were crossing the bridge as it was burning because the Soviet Union was falling and all these things were happening. And there's so many details in between all those moments. And there was a lot of joyful moments because at least I was with my family the whole time. But it caused an incredible amount of trauma that I only understood later on in life, the effects of it. I always say we I, we left Baku when I was four. We got to the United States when I was seven. And I always think about the Francescan monks because they say, you give me a, a boy at four and I'll give you a man at seven. And there's a lot of psychological research that's done that 
from four to seven are crucial moments in solidifying a person's identity. And I read and during those moments, I witnessed, you know, war, earth, natural disaster, you know, waiting in bread lines in Russia, a lot of poverty, a lot of discrimination, and just always understanding that something about my Armenian identity was dangerous to my reality. So I think that that was something that was very, um, very evident. But I also have very lovely memories. You know, my father um, would take me to the circus. Russia was a really lovely moment, too, for us. Um, I loved being in Moscow because it was so vibrant during that time. Still the center in many ways of the Soviet Union, but there was a lot of... um, there was a lot of challenges. And then moving to the United States, going from like a communist system to capitalism was very stressful. Being in Detroit in 1991, it was, you know, at the height of crime in the city. They had a lot of things that had happened there too. I always say like, it was almost like it had gone through its own war with racial issues in the city. A lot of people moved out and left. The city could fit like three major cities within its borders but it had been a population less than a million. You know, it could fit like Chicago, Boston, and I think like Philadelphia, and, but it had less than a million populations and there was old factories that were abandoned and just dilapidated. And, but we arrived with a group of other refugees from Baku that were sponsored by the Catholic Church of Detroit. And we had a little Armenian Baku community that started off in the inner city and then eventually took part in what is the idea of the American dream and moving to the suburbs and all of it. There's a lot to talk about there. Wow, what a story. There's a whole film, a whole uh, TV series with many episodes. You said something interesting about realizing that being Armenian is dangerous when you were little and four-year-old is so young to have that realization. Did you... Did you know it? Did this feeling stay with you? It's it's a terrifying feeling for a child to know because they're not wanted just because of their belonging to a certain group. Yeah, I think I was always so curious as a child and I would spy on my parents and hear their conversations, even though they tried to keep these things separate from us. I knew that I was only allowed to play on the balcony because going outside, especially during towards the end was dangerous. I knew that only my mother can go grocery shopping because she looked Russian. So anyone who had to leave the house unnecessarily, it was my mom, you know, who knew who could go do these things because she wasn't a target because she had Russian features. And I think about this, yeah, it was very early on that these realizations, I don't know how they kind of built up over time, but I understood it. And then also in Russia, I remember this very clear moment that my mom took me to the Russian embassy and or the Armenian embassy in like 1990. And at that point, the Karabakh war really escalated. The pogroms in Azerbaijan towards Armenians really escalated. And a lot of Armenian refugees were being brought into Russia, into Moscow. And my mom was taking food to them to feed them. Um, and she took me with her one time and a woman a refugee had like a complete psychological breakdown in front of me. And I think she saw me and it triggered something in her about what she was experiencing in Azerbaijan. And she just started screaming, like they're burning children 
in bags. They're burning children alive in bags and referring to what Azeris were doing to Armenian kids. And I think that that always haunted me because I was Armenian, I was a child, so this was a possibility, something that could happen to me. And I think what it resulted in later on in life was a lot of anxiety and always feeling like something was after me. Even to this day, I feel like I have that kind of a feeling, although it's becoming subsiding because I've had a lot of therapy to deal with this, that something was chasing me, something was after me. And as a child, you know, you have that imagination so you can invent lots of different things. What a horrific thing to hear as a child. What a horrific, horrific image. It's as an adult, um, my blood freezes hearing that. Imagine hearing it, a four-year-old, and thinking this might happen to you. Yes. Uh, yes, and sadly it's repeating, and this year we saw all the same history coming back. 30 years later, a cycle. It's like the cycle continues. Yeah. There's something I wanted to ask you, and it's always been a difficult question in Armenia to talk about how the refugees coming from Baku and Sumgait were treated in Armenia in the 80. And I remember being a teenager in Armenia, they were not welcome. They had nicknames, they had derogatory nicknames. Mm. And as a nation, I don't think we talk about this enough. It's a quite a taboo subject and we're very vocal about the hatred of the others against us, but how we treated this group of people, it's always in my head. And is this something your family encountered as well? I know it's a difficult question, but we need to speak about this. Yeah, I mean, I agree we did encounter it. It was a big reason why my mom said that we can't stay in Armenia because they would call us, what is it, taptavats, like upside down Armenians. Like, and that's that's something. And she recalls often a story where she was in Yerevan and trying to buy cabbage or something and nobody would sell it to her because they said like, you're another, you're a Zeri Armenian, like something about it. And, um, and she was really quite upset because she was born in Goris. And my whole family is from Goris, like centuries and centuries back. And um, from that region specifically, from a village seven kilometers outside of Goris. And she spent every summer there, you know, from the age of like four to 17 before she went to university. And, and my grandfather was very adamantly Armenian and retained that identity. And she just felt really heartbroken and betrayed by her own people. And that's why I think she didn't want to stay in Armenia when we came and in 1988. And then I also experienced that when I moved back in 2011, I moved from 2011 to the end of 2014. And I remember even somebody, when I said I was born in Baku, they said, oh, so you're the enemy. And I remember like hearing that too from somebody and feeling so disheartened. And then I also got to witness when the Syrian crisis happened and Armenians from Syria were entering the country really early on. Again, that sense of they're the other, they're not a really Armenian. And it's a really, um, I don't understand it. Like I just remember 
people in Yerevan raising prices of their apartments to rent out and just not making it easy. And I really worry right now with what's going on with Karabakh refugees. How are they being treated? I think hopefully it's a little bit better because they are from Karabakh. So maybe in some way, psychologically, Armenians believe that they're closer, even though I don't understand the separation. I think it's so interesting with Armenians is that externally, we've had so many people trying to divide us that somehow I feel like it psychologically has entered into us. And now we do a very good job of dividing ourselves. I'm Lebanese Armenian. I'm this Armenian. I'm from France Armenian. I'm American. I'm from LA. I'm, you know, it's like very, there's a real way that we have a way of dividing within ourselves and somehow creating a hierarchy because, and I really don't like this because it's an illusion that somehow one group of Armenians is better than the other. And I really felt, my parents felt that when we came in 1988. I know that Syrian Armenians felt that in like 2012. And I just, I have not been back to be able to see what's going on with the refugees there, but I hope that this is not repeating itself, but we have not done a good job welcoming refugees in the country. This is something I think a lot about. It's absolutely appalling. And it's, I always thought it has to do a lot with fear. And now, very sad, I do hear narratives against Karabakhtis as well. They have a dialect. Of course, not everyone is like that. But I think there is a lot of fear. But what you were saying about hierarchy and feeling you're more powerful and someone else is invading, basically, your space and taking your jobs, refugees coming and taking everything from us has been everyone's narrative from Trump to every dictator. Let's talk about something joyful now. Yes. We've, done, we've done the obligatory sad Armenian part. I know. <laughs> I met you through your beautiful films for which I'm very grateful. And uh, whoever is listening to this podcast, we will have a link for you to watch Oksana's films. I know you're working on a lot of ideas, but let me give you an abstract scenario. You have a budget of 50 million and you can make any film you want, what it would be? My God, I'll make so many films. <laughs> With 50 million, I can make a lot of films. <laughs> At least 50. <laughs> Okay, you have one million. Give me your ideal film, your dream film. I mean, I think right now my dream is my feature, my first debut feature that I'm trying to get money from that has to do with the, the conflict in, in Karabakh. And I've been working on it, researching it since 2011, since I first went to the front lines to be with the soldiers in Karabakh. And the idea just came to me. And it's my feature is Abyssum. It has to do with death and mourning. And what does it mean to have our mourning rituals of 40 days? And what does it mean to properly put something to rest, to put the past to rest? Because I feel like this is something that's not unique to us. It's how do you deal with trauma? A lot of us have a lot of trauma, trauma of war. I don't feel like it's, obviously it's not unique to Armenians. Historically, we've been dealing with war and cycles of war and they're integrated into our society and into our psyche. And I just want to understand personally, selfishly, maybe even for myself, how do I put the past to rest? 
because I did have a lot of post-traumatic stress after what we went through in fleeing as a child. And then in 2011, when I started to go back and sit with the soldiers on the front lines, I really didn't have the emotional language to understand what I was doing when I was going back to be with the soldiers, why I wanted to be with the army, what it meant. And it was only when I started to go deeply into analysis in 2017 that I understood the language of what I was doing subconsciously. And But I think that's my big project is this film about these, these twins that are dealing with death and how do we put the past to rest and I always felt like that this was going to happen. But yeah, so that's the project. I'm also working on a documentary film about a monk who's living in um, in the 17th century abandoned monastery in Armenia. He's been living in isolation for six years and I had met him by chance. That's another project I want to do. I want to make an installation like this temple, build a temple in Armenia that's um that would house these golden bellies that I make <laughs> these sculptures that I make there's a lot of going on in my mind because I like going from making films to making sculptures because it's so much more tangible film is so ephemeral sometimes and it even though it's quite creative it takes a lot of managerial skills and it's very thought-based you know everything's very much in the mind and then how do you create it but I love making sculptures because it makes me so much more present in the moment of actually pouring concrete or whatever I'm working with. So those are the three projects in my mind right now. Wonderful. I love the Temple of Golden Bellies. I'm yeah, sure you'll have lots to patriarchy. of... <laughs> you'll have lots of worshippers worshipping Golden Bellies in Armenia. We can't wait to see your um, films, but I find it incredible how connected you are to Armenia and Karabakh. Because mm -hmm. hearing your stories, I'm thinking someone else would have been, I don't want to go back. This is a place which didn't want me. Like you said, quoting your mom, you burn three, three, four burning bridges, but you still keep coming back. And... We do every time we talk about your films, I feel like it's just very personal, almost physical urge to do it. It's not that I have this cool idea and I'm going to make a film, but it's, yeah. I must do it. It's somewhere deep in my heart. Like Tarkovsky says, every film I make is a fundamental act. And I really feel that way. Like every film of mine in the past is very personal. Even if they don't seem like it, I hide it very well. Again, and then I'll go to Fellini. You know, he also said, if it's about me, if it's not about me, every film I make is about me because it's coming from my perspective and it's the only one that I have. But yeah, like I feel like when I went in Ar to Armenia in 2011, I felt, okay, like I'm going to volunteer for a few months and travel around and get to know some of my family that I didn't know when I was growing up because, um, you know, I know that a lot of people from a young age of Minions would travel back, but we didn't have the financial resources as refugees to have to be able to hop on a flight and go to Armenia. I only got to go once when I was 11. And it was such an important trip for me because it was the first time that I had seen my mother's grandparents since I was seven. And then I didn't see them again for the rest of my life. So it was, you know, it was just not available to us. Um, and so when I got a chance to go back, I really 
wanted to connect to it. And I wanted, I spent a lot of time in Karabakh going there, spending like weeks there at a time. In 2019, I went and taught a filmmaking workshop there for five weeks with Tumo and spent my the whole time in Stepanakert, which was so unusual for me because before every time I would go to Karabakh, I would be in Shushi. I wanted to know what did I get for that trauma? What did I get for losing Baku? and that kind of phantom identity, I call it. Uh, and what I got was Karabakh. It was magic for me because it is a very magical place. It was this kind of a feeling, I can't even describe it, but going through those mountains and then you're in this place that's so hidden, but it's yours. And I felt so safe there. It's a magical place. It is. Once, once you go there, you live a bit of your heart there. Mm -hmm. Seems you left a very big part of your heart. Yes. Let's hope for peace and let's hope for you to go back there and make beautiful films. Yes. You mentioned um, two of your favorites, Tarkovsky and Fellini. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your influences, filmmakers, writers. I know about your love of art, artists, artworks, music. What makes Oksana, Oksana? There's a lot to talk about there. I think first love is the theater and plays and writing. Um, that began when I was 12 years old. I really loved acting and I thought I was going to be a performer. I still really love it, but it just felt like I had wanted more control. So I started writing plays. I was obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe and Shakespeare when I was 12 years old. I don't know why. I mean, I still love them both so much. Edgar Allan Poe, I just felt like he was so, like a really like a kindred spirit and so romantic in so many ways and misunderstood. And um, I always find that photograph of him, that portrait of him so haunting. Um, and I loved Shakespeare when I was younger, and I learned a lot about storytelling from him. And then as I got older, I think a big influence in my high school, because I went to an American high school. When in, for elementary and middle school, I went to an Armenian school in Detroit, and I got that kind of education of having that, you know, our culture, our history, um, and that love came from my two my history teachers, um, my Armenian history teachers. But then in high school, I got exposed to this really American hippie culture, you know, listening to Kurt Cobain and then listening to Led Zeppelin and like all those great rock musicians like The Doors. And I'm still obsessed with them. I was listening to Led Zeppelin the other day and just thinking like how amazing he was, you know, like the Beatles and like that 60s culture. I really got exposed to it in high school. And I, I think I also loved that idea of what was happening in the 60s with human rights and all that expansion of consciousness. And then when I was 18, I really wanted to go take a silent meditation retreat and do a year of silence in Tibet. My mom did not agree with this. She like put a stop to it right away. But I always found Eastern religions so and philosophy so um, connected to it. And then when I went to university, I, you know, like I studied art history, I don't even know where to start because with that, it's Vermeer, it's Gentileschi, it's Caravaggio, Van Gogh, the being probably my closest in terms of emotionally and spiritually his work, Rembrandt for composition and lighting, Vermeer really for lighting, Caravaggio for his compositions, 
um, and studying so much of history and the art and Bernini for his sculptures and the, how he captured movements. And there was so much in there um, really, like I studied, I, I feel in a way, I didn't know what I was doing by studying art history, but I got the best education I could have possibly ever have had in terms of for filmmaking because the history of film is so short compared to the history of art. And I got a more kind of comprehensive idea of how our visual language came about and how then to incorporate it in film. And then with filmmakers, like I said, like Tarkovsky and Fellini, like the masters and, um, and then who else? Like I think about Scorsese and then the new ones, like, you know, um, Sofia Coppola, like I'm obsessed, I was obsessed with her when I was young. She was the only real female filmmaker I knew. My mom played classical music a lot. And then also I will say fairy tales. I don't talk about that enough, but Russian fairy tales, Pushkin, oh my God, like Ludmila and Ruslan or Ruslan and Ludmila. What a vibrant mix, but uh, watching your films, I can see the influence of, especially the art you're talking about, all very vivid and vibrant and plays with light and darkness. Rembrandt is just a master of light, isn't he? So many wonderful influences. And we cannot wait to see more work. The Temple of Golden Bellies. Thank you so much for talking to us. And the Armenian Institute hopes to host you in person, show fairy tales, and you can show us some Golden Bellies and films in return. I'll bring them to, to London with me. I have them right now in storage. Mm -hmm. <laughs>